Hi everyone, your old friend co-host Will here. It's been a while since I told you about the Michael and Us Patreon, so please bear with me. I have a family to feed. At patreon.com slash michaelandus, you get a whole extra episode every week, plus a variety of bonus content, all for the low, low price of five Yankee dollars per month. Last week on Patreon, we discussed Dwayne The Rock Johnson's new superhero epic, Black Adam, and other recent episodes have explored films ranging from Sorry to Bother You, to Morgan Spurlock's Super Size Me, to Total Recall, and many more. Every important person on Earth is already a subscriber, and you can join them by heading over to patreon.com slash michaelandus. In my Facebook memories from seven years ago, there's, uh, I don't know if you remember this. That was, uh, that was 2016, by the way. We all remember that year. Yeah. In some ways, it feels like it's never ended. Uh, <laughs> I saw someone do a tweet recently where they said, like, 2023 feels less like the third year of 2020 than the seventh year of 2016. And I think there's something to that. But this was back when the Hillary Clinton people were doing, like, the, the Hillary.com, they were making their own, like, in-house content. Like, this is how you got the, like, 13 reasons that you know hillary is my abuela and stuff well in fairness to them i mean everybody was doing that i mean um, the hillary clinton team was um particularly adept at that kind of thing but that was the height of branded content you know well see i don't know if they were uh adept because i think there's something they. i say that with quotation marks (laughs) sure sure I mean, I think they were adept enough to understand that like, okay, well, certain uh, formulas have taken root on social media and they thought, well, we can copy those for a politician and that'll work. And, uh, you know, so this one that's in front of me here is uh, Hillary Clinton and Ellen teamed up for a game of charades and it was hilarious. This kind of has the form of, I mean, not it's not quite... I bet it got a lot of shares. I mean, okay... I would be very interested to know what the metrics were on this because did this actually work? I have my doubts. Um, Well, that would require more research than I'm willing to put into this. (laughs) Yeah, if if you have any former uh, staff members from HillaryClinton.com listening, which I'm sure we do. Please um, write in. I'm curious what the (laughs) metrics were. Yeah, but you know. You know, it was huge that delete your account tweet. You remember that? when Donald Trump posted something and she quote tweeted it with delete your account. Yeah. That was and, massive. And do you remember how that was covered? It was massive in the sense that everybody- And it swung Michigan well, for her. <laughs> yeah. There was an article, uh, a similarly viral article. It was like with one tweet, Hillary Clinton just destroyed Donald Trump's campaign. Not quite dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, this, you know, Hillary Ellen thing, it has the form of kind of one of those, you know, upworthy headlines where- so I understand it, Upworthy was the brainchild of somebody with a background at moveon.org and then someone else who I think had worked at The Onion or something. This kind of perfect synergy of online sensibilities was created wherein, you know, in the classic Upworthy headline, you get a kind of setup that's maybe a little bit improbable and then there's always a comma where you have the emotional payoff. So it's like the classic, you know, if you're making fun of Upworthy, you say something like, uh, Martin Luther King, the Dalai Lama, and a racist gorilla walk into a bar. What happened next will completely change your view of civil rights or something. <laughs> Sometimes it's like not even political. It's purely just the promise of an emotional payoff where it would say something like, uh, and if you can get through 30 seconds of this without crying, you're made of stone or something. 
And the thing is, you know, they copied it and lots of other people, you know, this isn't even like a specific criticism of Hillary Clinton. I just happen to think it, it worked particularly badly, like trying to adapt, you know, these sorts of sensibilities and, and formulae to a, you know, a campaign around a candidate that wasn't particularly popular. But everybody was doing this, right? The whole internet, after places like Upworthy figured out that, hey, like there's a template that can give you viral content. Here's another one that was associated early on, which partly I think popularized anyway, if not pioneered, by another Democratic presidential campaign. This was Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 had one of the most effective fundraising emails ever where they just made the subject line, hey, or something like that. It was a one word subject line or hello, or I can't remember, something like that. And, you know, millions of people got like an email that just said Barack Obama and then the format of like an email you get from a friend. And so like in terms of the metrics on that, we know that a lot of people opened the email. And other campaigns adopted it. Lord knows Bernie Sanders did a lot of those. Uh, Luke, I am asking for your help. <laughs> yeah. Emails. Yeah. So this is kind of what I'm getting at is that I don't, I don't particularly care, like want to talk about Hillary Clinton anymore, even if it is the seventh year of 2016. But like this came to mind, I suppose because it got me thinking about the way that everything on the internet is ultimately ephemeral and how something that is a template for you know viral content will never uh, remain as such for very long because okay it's true that everything on the internet is ephemeral but there are some guys i know who posted pictures of their dicks on twitter and then <laughs> deleted that instantly and that's still spoken about frequently in the group chats <laughs> i'm not sure that's so much a formula as it is just people publicly humiliating themselves <laughs> <laughs> but the point is every so often people you know discover a new method that's guaranteed to generate viral content but then once something becomes sort of universally recognized as like this is a formula for viral content there's always the same decline as you see with like different meme formats like back in like i don't know 2012 or something i remember seeing like scumbag steve memes that i thought were funny maybe i've just grown up maybe i've maybe i've grown past scumbag steve but i think it's more just like culture has outgrown scumbag steve because once there's once scumbag steve reaches a sufficient level Level of saturation it no longer has the spontaneity of original scumbag steve i mean isn't that kind of true of everything i mean movie comedians come along and they tend to be very big for like five or ten years and then they they fade away there are a lot of things in our cultural <laughs> ecosystems that benefit from an initial burst of novelty and then have a long fading away process then again, there are formulas in our cultural ecosystems that are incredibly durable, like the talk show format has been with us in its current incarnation for like 70 years. I guess there are some formats that benefit from shock and spontaneity and others that benefit from comfort and familiarity. Yeah, I think the internet is sort of in a class of its own with this stuff because A, I think it's by definition a more ephemeral and sort of a transitory medium than the other ones you just mentioned. But secondly, I think it's notable that the sort of underlying grammar of the internet is so ephemeral because, you know, the underlying grammar of the internet is now sort of like the architecture of our entire civilization and culture. So the fact that like the sort of foundational forms of all kinds of things, you know, jokes, uh, viral tweets, fundraising emails, campaign PR, the fact that that can't remain even remotely stable, I think is kind of a new paradigm. I was thinking about this this week because I watched this Netflix documentary about Cal the hatchet wielding hitchhiker. Do you know about this? 
Have you seen this? You heard about this? <laughs> you know, I actually don't, to be honest. Oh, come on. You you know the video. Fuck yeah, I hop on out. And so I grabbed the bag. I threw it over by that pole right there. And then fucking Buddy gets out. And these two women are trying to help him. He runs up and he grabs one of them, man. Like a guy that big can snap a woman's neck like a pencil stick. So I fucking ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah. The, the lady said you saved your life. She was the one who got grabbed by that fucker. Okay, so Luke just showed me the video. I'm sorry to disappoint him and the listeners. I don't think I've seen it before, but you're telling me it was the biggest video on the internet for like a day. You you weren't on you I guess you you weren't on the internet. You weren't on on the World Wide Web in the year of our Lord 2013. Well, I I certainly was. Maybe I was out of town that day. Who knows? Whatever. Um, they have the. It's internet. a good. It's a good video. They have the internet out of town, just so you know. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Anyway, I mean, this. You know, the documentary is sort of about. I mean, I didn't know any of the background on this. Like the fact that this this was seen by a bunch of like somebody who was involved with keeping up with the Kardashians or something saw this and was like, this guy's gonna be a star. Like all these entertainment types like saw this. They saw this video like after a few days had like 45 million views or something, and they were like, all right, we're gonna. They they were just seeing dollar signs. They're like, we're gonna make this kid a star. We're gonna give him his own reality show he actually did go on jimmy kimmel shortly after this and you know it was kind of like oh yeah this guy you know he's a hero there was this kind of like racist hit and run and he came in and he smashed the guy you know smash on uh, i was i was gonna ask did he murder him with his hatchet the guy didn't die uh but in the documentary you see like pictures of like there were exactly three smashes and on the third one he used the sharp end of the hatchet and yeah, I mean, this is a sort of prototypical viral video for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> One of them being that he was milkshake ducked within <laughs> 12 weeks of this. He was accused of murdering a guy in New Jersey who then, you know, he claimed, well, the guy like sexually assaulted me. But in the sort of 12 weeks between that incident and this uh, video that I just showed you, you know, he was kind of getting recognized everywhere. There's various people who sort of came across him during this period who talk about him. But I found the documentary a very strange artifact, like quite, quite apart from the actual events that it was detailing. I didn't know anything about like I experienced this video, I think the way probably most people on the Internet did, which is like you saw the you uh, laughed at a man who was probably mentally. Well, uh, I don't know, whatever. He just, you know, uh, it instantly you stopped consuming it in its sort of Baroque original form very quickly. Uh, you know, we're talking about how ephemeral things are on the Internet. It had several phases of generic transformation where like, you know, it was getting turned into like songs and then the songs became like memes in their own right which then like branched off into other memes or whatever so i experienced all that in like probably just a few days haven't thought about this guy since i saw the thumbnail on netflix i was like oh yeah i remember that guy but so yeah i didn't know anything you know any of the stuff that happened after but quite apart from uh you know any of those details what struck me about it was the way all these people were talking about a viral video like all these entertainment producers and stuff where like they're so fascinated by I mean, this just, I don't know, amusing trifle that just like appeared decontextualized on the internet. And they were like, oh no, we're going to make a whole show out of this. This kid has such like an it factor. Like he's going to be such a big deal. I mean, he was homeless and he didn't offer a last name. And so I guess it would have been hard to do a background check. But it's like they didn't they just skipped all of that. They didn't seem to like do a serious interview with him or anything. They were just like, we're going to make him into a star. And that lasted like, you know, a few weeks, basically. God, there's a lot I don't like about that. Just the idea of like a lot of showbiz people and entertainment people and famous people looking at this guy who like 
plainly, you know, like, you know, I'm reminded a little bit of Don Hughes, uh, the great Get Fiscal on one Twitter. Of the, one of the great posters of our time. Yeah. Uh, he had a great letterbox review of the movie The Disaster Artist, <laughs> yeah. uh, the James Franco film about Tommy Wiseau, where he said, <laughs> the first real film of the Trump era, a snide, bigoted joke between rich friends. <laughs> and I don't know, like, I feel like there's a similar energy wafting off the brief attempt to make this obviously not entirely well man a star. Well, you don't know how right you are because, uh, yeah, one of the talking heads in it who I think uh, was involved with keeping up with the Kardashians at one point she's talking about the marketability of this or like you know the commercial potential and she's talking in this very sort of condescending patronizing way about like he could provide a window into a world you know that we don't we don't really see it's often like off the radar and she's saying that explicitly in the context of being like and we'll make a ton of money off of that. I'm reminded of Jerry Springer talking about how you people you people who condemn my show you're trying to avert your gaze from the reality the, the <laughs> yeah. people the normal people that i expose you to who you and your guilted cages with your money and your gated communities don't want to look at anyway we can end the stream of consciousness about the internet in a second but I was just kind of blown away watching this documentary about a video that is, you know, about 10 years old and already it feels like just a fossil. It's from an era when I think there were just fewer viral videos. And now like the, the entire internet is now made out of this. Like every day is just the hyper real version of this times a million. Like the whole culture is made out of this and like the double rainbow guy now. And to me watching this, uh, the original video felt as distant in time or maybe even more so than things I remember from my childhood in the 90s which I think is interesting to consider well I mean this podcast has been here for almost seven years now we should thank our lucky stars that we've been able to hack it in such an ephemeral environment for so long Anyway, we do have a movie to discuss, but before we get to that, there is one subject who's been on both our minds and everyone's minds lately, and that's Prince Harry. Would you believe this, Luke? I'm ashamed to say, not only have I basically been following the Prince Harry drama, I've actually sought it out. I've, I've looked up articles by myself of my own volition to see what's going on with Prince Harry and Meghan now. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm actually getting interested in this bullshit. I was in a bookstore the other day and they have so many copies of Spare at my local Indigo. The only time I've seen anything like it was when Barack Obama's book came out where it's like you could make like an awesome fort out of, you know, out of the books. Like they just have stacks of them going up to the ceiling practically. And it's funny because I do feel like his story has been told. Even though I've sought out his story, I feel like I've kind of heard everything already. There's not a lot new coming here, but you I know that certain excerpts from this new book have come to our attention. Can I, before we get into those, just say the one thing that I found especially funny about this book, which is that revelation that he killed 25 people in Afghanistan? I don't know if that's a revelation. I actually have a hard time. I mean, I have a hard time like, believing that. You don't think it's true? Well, I have a few questions about it. First of all, like I kind of doubt that the Prince of England was anywhere near a situation where he would be able to kill anybody. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a matter of public record. I, I don't know. But You see, it doesn't even really matter to me because what matters is that that's part of the official story. And that's interesting. It's interesting that whether it's true or not, Prince Harry and his team have said, OK, uh, it's important for my brand to say that I was out there fighting in the war. Mm. 
I was getting my hands dirty, not like certain posh and privileged yeah. members of this family, not like certain fucking siblings of mine who sat on a fucking throne for their whole lives. I was out there, the spare, getting my hands dirty. Well, not only does he say he killed 25 people, but he says, and I didn't consider them victims or something. Like, it's, and that's it's, interesting. It's a sort of particularly like bloodthirsty little passage. Don't you think it's meant to make him seem sort of human and relatable in a way? Absolutely. And that is the thing that seems to run throughout the whole book and also the, the documentary which I'm embarrassed to say I watched there is a scene in that I don't know if you got this far but where they're doing this like a guided meditation thing did you see that (laughs) and the guided meditation is like the voices say it's like they must have like there must be a special guided meditation app for rich people because the voice is saying something to the effect of like you're very famous and special don't care what the haters say or something it's not quite like that but that's the implication of it and I'm watching they're like this (laughs) it's not meditation you're just listening to a voice reassuring you like their eyes are closed and like they're crying and stuff that's called going to a tony robbins lecture (laughs) yeah 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 but yeah the idea that the team said okay what do what do normal people do what did normal people do during the afghanistan or iraq wars they uh they fought in the war that's what that's what working class people did (laughs) they they fought in the war they did they got their hands to you know we we the elites we sent these people off to war to die and how terrible that is. But but this guy, he went and he fought. And isn't that great? Not only did he fight, he fucking killed. Uh-huh. That's how serious a fighter he was. Yeah, so just to, just to finish my thought on that, my other reservation about whether that's true is like, I don't think they give you... It, like it's not Call of Duty. There's not like a kill counter that tells Acor- you. According to him, there is. According to him, but you see, you'd know this if you fought in the war like he did. <laughs> all the all the boys out there, we all have we all have our body counts, you know. You know, we all have the notches on our bedpost. We all know what our number is. We move on from that particular episode in the book, but it does seem to I don't know channel the ethos that runs through the documentary and uh, all the excerpts from Spare that I've seen. Where you know, as you put it, the whole thing is for him to be as relatable as possible. And the means to that is sort of being very vulnerable and sharing a lot. And that is, I think, what's produced some of the funniest passages from the book. There's one that uh, my girlfriend found where, I mean, I think he's about 14 or 15 in the story uh, that he's relating. And he's talking about like different teachers at his school. And he's talking about like the ones that were hot. And then like one of them who he like names and he's saying like, and she wasn't hot. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Or then there's the one which you must have seen. My penis was oscillating between extremely sensitive and borderline traumatized. The last place I wanted to be was Frostnipistan. I've been trying some home remedies, including one recommended by a friend. She'd urged me to apply Elizabeth Arden cream. My mum used that on her lips. You want me to put that on my todger? It works, Harry. Trust me. I found a tube, and the minute I opened it, the smell transported me through time. I felt as if my mother was right there in the room. Then I took a smidge and applied it down there. That was really good. Yes. I, I like that. The backstory to that is apparently he did some kind of charity walk in Antarctica or something, which I guess is where you go if you're like... And, and, he, and he, he, heard, he heard his penis and, while he and, was there. Yeah, his todger got frostbitten. And did, I, did he have it out? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's in the book. I think somebody advanced the theory that like it was probably a prank gone awry or something. Like, well, we, What do we know about the British elites? They're always sticking their penises in things as part of some like college yeah, haze. Etonian, Etonian hazing yeah. ritual. So yeah, this was the sub-zero version of what like David Cameron did with that pig. Someone who uh, tweeted that excerpt out we just played included the caption, this book is a Freudian nightmare. And it's true. I mean, 
lot going on in that passage. But so, yeah, the book has this oversharing quality. And I mean, you want to talk about its efforts to make Prince Harry seem relatable. There were two passages that I think to me, these are the most interesting ones. One of them involves him stumbling across a quote and he says, the past is never dead. It's not even past. When I discovered that quotation not long ago on brainyquote.com, I was thunderstruck. I thought, who the fuck is Faulkner? So that's that's uh, that's my that's my first entry. That was, wait, that was not long ago that he was saying who the fuck is Faulkner. Yeah, and he fa- and he found what the schools co- was he going to? Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up. This is where we're going next. But yeah, he found that on BrainyQuotes.com, which like it's so interesting that his ghostwriter and his team <laughs> they decided, and you know Prince Harry, their committee, they decided we're going to include the detail. He, they could have just written that in a way where it's like as Faulkner wrote, blah blah blah. But they built into the fact that not only did he not know who Faulkner was, but he read it on brainyquotes.com. Does that mean he's learning and growing? It's like he doesn't stay in his gilded cage. He's out there. He's <laughs> learning about culture. They so, don't teach a Faulkner at Buckingham Palace. On on page uh, 276 of the book, there's another excerpt of God here that's been making the rounds. This is, I guess, an early conversation that he and uh, Meghan Markle had. And one of them says, my summer is already planned. Mine too. Surely in the whole summer we could find one small spot of time. She shook her head. She was doing the full eat, pray, love. Eat what now? The book? Ah, sorry. Not really big on books. That's, you know, him saying. He says, he's a lad like you. He continues, I felt intimidated. She was the opposite of me. She read. She was cultured. So look, I can't see the rest of the page, but you asked about schooling. And I mean, I actually think this is a pretty interesting commentary on... I don't know how the British ultra elite are socialized because, it's you know, Prince Harry did go to Eton and it's like the move here where it's like he doesn't know what eat, pray, love is. And then he's just intimidated by it, not because of the subject matter, but just because it 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 is a book <laughs> <laughs> like like he thinks Meghan Markle is cultured because she's because she's referring to to any book to to eat pray love yeah (laughs) like and i don't know i mean i feel like this is like a complaint that an ultra reactionary british conservative would make about prince harry but i do feel like there was a time where members of the landed gentry were at least expected to have a basic command of like the canon like there were a number of books that they were expected to at least know like what the books were and that was part of you know the those were the signifiers of like that's how you perform you know your status you know that's part of what gives it legitimacy and i think it's interesting that like harry he just seems to have skipped that or it doesn't seem to have been expected of him and so i don't know it's it's interesting to me the subtext here and i feel like the subtext of a lot of this story which is that you know he's actually quite impressed by pretty run-of-the-mill signifiers of just like a bourgeois liberal lifestyle like people reading people referring to eat pray love anyway i don't know prince harry seems like a nice enough lad i don't want to be too hard on him oh I- fuck him no what <laughs> what's this this man killed 25 people <laughs> i don't think he did <laughs> that's the thing there were certain things about the netflix documentary that i thought were genuinely interesting i mean obviously it's a very sort of manicured and airbrushed uh, sort of narrative but i like prince harry's disclosure of the fact that uh the royal family like functionally is actually a bunch of different Soviets where they like each have their little office located in different places where they have PR teams which strategically leak compromat to different tabloids about the other ones and stuff like that and I mean as annoying as it is to see like somebody who grew up in a palace like suddenly sort of take on all the signifiers of like yeah I don't know west coast sort of gilded upper class lifestyle you know where he's now like the chief wellness officer at a startup or whatever one thing I do think is authentic or reasonable 
reasonably authentic about the narrative is that this is a genuinely fucked up and weird way to grow up that probably would do weird things to your brain. And I don't know, as like cloyingly normy as I found, uh, you know, the pair of them, it does genuinely seem like he, he wants to be a good person. And, you know, if the two of them want to start like a wellness podcast network, that might be annoying. But if what they achieve in the act is like burning the house of Windsor to the ground, I'm, I'm fucking here <laughs> for it. Not since the Godfather has there been an epic as powerful as traffic. We need to send a message. It's a cinematic landmark, says the New York Times. Borders disappearing. It's going to be free for all. And now it's been nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay. Let's do some more. Best Supporting Actor, Benicio Del Toro. I feel like a traitor. Best Director, Steven Soderbergh. And Best Picture of the Year. Just tell me where my daughter is. Traffic. Our movie on this episode is 2000's Traffic, directed by Steven Soderbergh. This was this month's winner of the Superdelegate poll. That's right, our superdelegate patron tier uh, through the multi-tiered, very flawed democratic process uh, <laughs> led to this movie uh, getting a not overwhelming victory, but a certain plurality of a certain section of the votership. And so this is what we got. You know, democracy is never perfect, and it was not in this case. Yeah, people get the Michael and us episode they deserve. Uh, but Traffic is a movie that I, I had never seen before. Had you seen it? Yeah, once, a long time ago. Interesting, because when it came out, I was, I was 11 years old when it came out. I was old enough to have heard of it, to have got the sense that it was a big deal movie. It was certainly an enormous critical and commercial success, made over $100 million, got many Academy Award nominations, won an Oscar for Best Director, but had never got around to seeing it because I was a little too young at the time. And I also just sort of feel this is just my gut speaking. This is the old war wound talking. You know, this is the winds in the air that I'm perceiving. I feel that this has not quite gone down as a classic. I don't hear people talk about this one that much. Certainly it is a known movie. It's a widely seen movie, but I don't sense the same sort of enthusiasm and vigor around this movie as certain movies that came out around the same time, like let's say Memento or... um... What about Crash? Well, Crash is like kind of a joke. This movie's not a joke. That's the Paul Haggis crash. I feel like, oh yeah, of co- uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. I hope, I hope that was obvious. But you think Crash sort of is a more remembered film than this, but it's primarily remembered as a film people thought were good and then quickly realized was actually bad. I mean, it's funny. We all live in our silos, right? We all uh, live in our little echo chambers. Certainly, my echo chamber is telling me that I don't know anyone who likes Crash. <laughs> but this one, Traffic, I think it's kind of remembered as a sort of like workmanlike movie that like i feel like requiem for a dream from this time i think requiem for a dream came out the same year even i think that inspires more fervor and passion nowadays even than this one does and i think that's one reason why the patrons who voted for this one voted for it because this is a movie that as some of them pointed out it comes from ah uh, the end of history it comes from the year 2000. It's pre 9 11. All right, that's our use of that one. Yeah, we got to we got to yeah. start adopting a quota. It's uh, the end of Clinton, early Bush. It's a war on drugs movie, and I have a review here that I found from the New York Times by Stephen Holden, published December 27, 2000. That begins: Steven Soderbergh's great despairing squall of a film, Traffic, may be the first Hollywood movie since Robert Altman's Nashville to infuse epic cinematic form with jittery new rhythms and a fresh, acid-washed palette. The agitated pulse of the handheld camera work, 
by the director working under a pseudonym, that roughly elbows its way into the center of the action, is perfectly suited to the film's hard-boiled subject, America's losing war on drugs. The color scheme sandwiches a few lush patches between sequences filmed in two hues, an icy blue and sun-baked yellow-orange that are as visually discordant as the forces doing battle. Now, I could go on. Uh, The review is obviously very positive. But I think that review conveys something of the fact that this movie, at the time, it felt very of the zeitgeist. It felt very new. And I think when you watch it now, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's in some ways a good movie. I enjoyed watching it, I have to say. Okay, but I think you'll agree that it's kind of a dated movie. Yes, I think by this point, our audience knows us pretty well. And initially, I was a little confused as to why, you know, they would vote for us to watch something like this, which is which is good, but is, you know, I, I don't think is is quite as brilliant as that uh, gushing, effusive review you just quoted. But I actually think this is an instance of, you know, our listeners perhaps knowing us a little better than we know ourselves. <laughs> because I think what this is, is a film that's so of its time that everything that was good about it that made it, I think, at least a little more than a standard sort of middle-brow Oscar movie. I think whatever transgressive edge was and and is there is kind of uh, illegible to us. I mean, we can start with the style of the film. I mean, Stephen Holden in The Times correctly identifies the look of the film feels very cutting-edge of the year 2000. Yeah, that jittery handheld. I mean, I don't know if the film was shot digitally, but it certainly looks like it was. And I know that Steven Soderbergh in the more than 20 years since has continued to be an innovator, has continued to jump on new trends, new ways to shoot movies, new digital technologies. You can see him doing that here. And, and Soderbergh, we should say, did did fight for a particular creative vision around this film. It was originally going to be financed by 20th Century Fox, and they insisted that Harrison Ford have, if not the leading role, a leading role. They wanted the screenplay changed substantially. Soderbergh wouldn't do that. He took it to other studios that all turned it down because they thought it was too long and they thought it was too political, (laughs) you know, which I think speaks to the fact that, you know, yeah, the politics of this film, you you could find them all over like Netflix now, but I don't think in, you know, the the late 90s or whenever he was first shopping this around, that would have been the case. A political movie, I feel like in the 90s was almost its own genre. Stuff like Wag the Dog, Bullworth, certain of those middle brow political movies. That was almost its own section at the video store, whereas now everything's a fucking political movie. <laughs> everything's got. People don't seek out movies because, oh, that's a political movie. It's just part of the fabric. But so there are a number of things about this film that I think were more innovative, more original at the time, maybe even a little avant-garde, which, yeah, again, now I think are pretty standard. You know, this is the trajectory we're talking about before. This is hatchet-wielding Hitchhiker 2013 to Netflix documentary about it in 2023. So this applies to all kinds of things about traffic. I mean, just the the fact of the political subject matter, the different uh, kind of color tones that Will was talking about. There are multiple storylines in traffic. It is kind of an epic picture. That was another trendy thing at the time, too. This is, you know, Pulp Fiction. Crash. (laughs) Well, Pulp Fiction was a great trendsetter for Mm -hmm. that kind of like lots of different stories Mm -hmm. and they're all connected style. And then this came out around the same time as Amoris Peros. And then there was Crash and Babel and Syriana, a whole wave of movies in the 2000s. I do want to go out on a limb just to gently push back against that critic from the New York Times who compared this film to Nashville. I mean, look, I enjoyed watching this movie. It was not a chore at all, but come on, it's not Nashville. 
Uh, I mean, I look, I agree. But, you know, <laughs> he was talking about epic Americana combined with uh, new techniques. Okay, well, in that sense, yeah, it's Nashville. Uh, now, another review that I want to bring up halfway through the movie, I wanted to sort of get a sense of what was the what was the received wisdom about this movie? What was the consensus? And there is no critic that you go to to give you that better than Mr. Roger Ebert. Uh-huh. And I said to you, what do you think Ebert's take is going to be? And what did you say? I think I said something like uh, he's going to he's going to praise the film for letting audiences make up their own mind and he's gonna he's gonna praise it for sort of being very minimal about how much it editorializes or something like that well okay in in the pages of the chicago sun times roger ebert writes soderbergh's film uses a level-headed approach it watches it observes it does not do much editorializing the hopelessness of anti-drug measures is brought home through practical scenarios not speeches and messages except for a few And it goes on like that. Later on, he says, the movie is powerful precisely because it doesn't preach. It is so restrained that at one moment, the judge's final speech, I wanted one more sentence making a point, but the movie lets us supply that thought for ourselves. (laughs) And the facts make their own argument. I actually disagree with Ebert there. I would have liked a few fewer sentences in that last scene, Michael Douglas's last speech. I thought that was probably my least favorite part of the movie. So uh, what do we what do we got going on for plot here? We got a lot of different stories. I mean, the best plot, my favorite plot is uh, Michael Douglas is a conservative justice. He's the presumably Republican administration's chief czar in the war on drugs. Could, could honestly be either, I think, at this point. Yeah. I mean, I know what you mean. He's encoded a certain way, you know, where he has sort of what we think of as, you know, Republican sort of law and order politics. But I don't know. This is pretty much where, I mean, this is just what Joe Biden's politics were. Uh, yeah. at the time anyway, and, and Bill Clinton, I think, too. But anyway, while he's doing all the work, his daughter Caroline, played by Erica Christensen, and her teenage friends are becoming drug addicted themselves. They're home alone in their parents' Georgetown mansions with nothing to do except hit the crack pipe and polish off the needle. And so the real emotional center of the film is Michael Douglas's journey from being a hardline war on drugs ideologue to through seeing his daughter become addicted to heroin, first discovering nuance, and then finally in the heroic penultimate scene of the film in the middle of a press conference, uh, going Bullworth and saying that he can't he can't go through with this so-called war on drugs anymore. One thing I want to just enter into the record in terms of what's, I think, dated about the film is its treatment of race. And I do think the movie has a complicated relationship with that. It's not, it's not simply one thing, but much like Requiem for a Dream at the same time, the Erica Christensen character's descent is kind of depicted as these posh white kids kind of get sullied by going further and further down the rabbit hole of, you know, going into poor neighborhoods, going into black neighborhoods. And there's a subplot in this film of her like having sex with her black drug dealer to get her score, just as there is with Jennifer Connelly's character in Requiem for a Dream. Now, the movie tries to a degree to think 
systemically about race in that scene where Topher Grace as her boyfriend, you know, Michael Douglas pulls Topher Grace out of school and is dragging him down to, you know, the wrong side of town to try to find the dealer who will lead him to his daughter who's disappeared. And Topher Grace unleashes this speech, kind of like the speech that Halle Berry gives Warren Beatty and Bullworth, you know, about, well, have you ever, have you ever thought about what it's like for this neighborhood to have all these white kids coming down here and asking for drugs and what that can do for the psychology of a neighborhood. Nevertheless, there's something about the way that this movie links the downward spiral of drug addiction with sexual degradation, specifically sex with, you know, black drug dealers that I think is very 2000. Um, I don't think that's something that would be in a movie now, or if it was, it wouldn't be in quite the same way as it is here. Okay, right now, all over this great nation of ours, 100,000 white people from the suburbs are cruising around downtown, asking every black person they see, you got any drugs? You know I can score some drugs? Think about the effect that that has on the psyche of a black person, on their possibilities. I, God, I guarantee you, you bring 100,000 black people into your neighborhood, into fucking Indian Hill, and they're asking every white person they see, you got any drugs? You know I can score some drugs? Within a day, everyone would be selling. Your friends, their kids, here's why. It's an unbeatable market force, man. There are a couple of other plots You've got Benicio del Toro as a Mexican police officer. Yeah, he gets involved with a guy called General Salazar, who Michael Douglas's character, when the plots eventually intersect, Michael Douglas's character wants to use this guy as kind of a hammer because he's fighting one of the big cartels in Tijuana. Michael Douglas, of course, you know, has very standard, at least throughout much of the film, has kind of the very standard sort of law and order attitude towards the war on drugs. You know, he thinks about it, drug trafficking and even drug use are just like any crime. And you just cut the head off the snake. You smash the cartel. We begin to see a change in his character when he starts asking various experts and such, you know, why isn't there anybody here on this plane who knows about the treatment side of the drug war, that kind of thing. But basically, he wants to use General Salazar to smash one of the cartels. Del Toro and his partner figure out that Salazar is actually working with one of the cartels against the other one. So the whole kind of anti-drug campaign that's going on here is phony. It's merely just kind of a turf war within the North American drug trade. I mean, that's pretty much the thrust of the Mexico storyline. And then in I think what was for me maybe the the least interesting of the storylines, there's a whole kind of San Diego plot involving a character played by Don Cheadle, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Dennis Quaid also appear in this plot. It really is a a tremendous ensemble cast. Louis Guzman as Don Cheadle's partner. Can't Uh forget him. Bit of a Boogie Nights reunion there. Right. Uh, I mean, some really good performances in this film. I mean, as I said, I did quite enjoy watching it, even though I feel like much of what it does was sort of done later on somewhat better. I mean, I think in talking about a film like Traffic, you can't not think of The Wire, right? And I mean, I think The Wire, you know, partly by virtue of its scope, The Wire is, you know, six seasons long, so it has a lot more to work with. It's better for that reason. But I think also The Wire uh, actually does have more of a perspective than this movie does. I mean, that's it's a tricky thing because Ebert's not wrong when he says that one of the selling points, one of the virtues of the movie is the fact that it doesn't editorialize a lot. Which is also, I think, what makes it a little bit weak or weaker than it was 20 years ago. I mean, it's important to remember the context that this movie came out in was a time when drugs were much more stigmatized, I think, than they are now. Or at least there was a different kind of climate surrounding discussion on the war on drugs. I mean, just a few years before, Bill Clinton had to say he did not inhale 
there was a great deal of controversy in the election year that this movie came out about did George W. Bush do cocaine? Within eight years, Barack Obama could basically say, oh yeah, I did cocaine in college and it wasn't even a campaign issue anymore. Yeah, so in the in the face of all that, you can see how the perspective of this film, the sort of almost view from nowhere, I mean, it's a significant improvement on what the sort of, I don't know, mainstream attitude, uh, or at least, you know, officialdom's attitude, I should say, towards the drug war uh, had been, you know, from the Reagan era through the Clinton era. Or like there's a bit where the two undercover cops, Louis Guzman and Don Cheadle, are they're in the van and they're making a crack about one of them having a tobacco patch on his arm, trying to quit smoking. Right. And, you know, the implication is, oh, we're all addicted to something, yeah. right? Well, it's like I was I said to you, it reminds me of like how the thesis of Crash, again, not the Cronenberg crash, the Paul Haggis one is, well, what if we're, we're all a little racist? Right. And I mean, <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, which again, came out the same year, also has a little bit of that where it's like, okay, yeah, the drugs, but also what? about the diet pills yeah that the ellen bernstein character is is addicted to yeah, did you know that uh caffeine is actually a drug yeah uh <laughs> thank you bill maher yeah a little, yeah, little uh, grade seven schoolyard wisdom there but all that stuff i think would have been at least i mean it wasn't a revolutionary insight at the time but you you didn't hear it as much in um official culture let's say yeah, that's right. And I mean, to reiterate what I said before, I mean, the officialdom's attitude towards this, like the attitude of institutions like many of those that are portrayed in the film, like, you know, the White House, the DEA, the FBI, etc. Not to give those institutions too much credit in the present, but in terms of the rhetoric that emanated from those kinds of institutions for decades, it reflected the attitude that Michael Douglas's character has at the beginning of this film, which is like, this is not a social or a political problem, doesn't have any kind of like, you know, wider, uh, there's no wider economic dimension to this. We don't have to think about the role of big pharmaceutical companies in this, or the profit motive that drives them or anything like that. This is just straightforward criminality. It comes down to just individual failings and, and you know, cultural pathologies and things like that. It's not really, uh, it's not really systemic in the way that this film portrays it as. That's why I want to kind of credit this film while also criticizing it, because I feel like that point of view can only get you so far. I mean, I think you were getting at this a little bit earlier. Once I realized that the film was sort of adopting this view from nowhere, where, you know, the the emotional payoff is the Michael Douglas character basically realizing, you know, I can't, I can't do this job. The war is fake. There is no war. Or if there is, it's not a winnable one. And I failed as a father and I haven't been sufficiently empathetic. So I can't be part of like the bureaucratic apparatus that is carrying all of this out anymore. I mean, I suppose that's a kind of editorializing, but at the same time, I mean, it's not its not a prescriptive editorializing. Like, the film has this kind of view from nowhere that, at the end of the day, echoes for me a lot of not-as-good films that we've watched and discussed from around this same time, where there actually isn't all that strong of a political perspective in what is ostensibly a very political movie, because it's kind of like, what do you do about it? The film is saying you can't just cut the head off the snake. You know, this highly bureaucratized law and order approach that's been pursued for decades doesn't work. It does more harm than good. It's built on faulty premises, etc. But I feel like the implication at the end of the film is just sort of one of futility. It's like, well, you can't really do anything about it. And I'm going to try to say this without using the phrase because you, we've already hit our quota for it. Once an episode at this point is probably enough. But I mean, this movie came out in 2000. And I mean, if there was ever a moment where sort of political futility and, you know, politics being sort of over and just neutralized as an enterprise of reform, that would be it. You know, it's the it's the mid to late 1990s. 
So in that climate, I mean, maybe you can come to the revelation that, okay, something like this is systemic and the longstanding attitude of officialdom towards it is wrong, but you can't envision a way out of it. And even though the film is about institutions, I mean, the film's vision can't accommodate any kind of collective or institutional response to uh, any of the subject matter it's dealing with, right? The emotional climax of the film is a beltway bureaucrat being like, ah, I don't want anything to do with this, you know? it's That's as sort of overtly political as the film can really get. There is a war on drugs that many of our family members are the enemy. And I don't know how you wage war on your own family. Now, I realize we've had this whole conversation about traffic without running through the plot in a granular way. Now, obviously, uh, there are three uh, major storylines in this film, and we haven't really gone into any of them in a, in a granular way. I don't really feel the need to do that because even though uh, this film is very much carried by the plot in the sense that, you know, you have three intersecting storylines with lots of characters, lots of scenes that are notable that we could discuss. In spite of all that, I don't think it has much to do with the ideological side of this film. I think the plot is entertaining. Like I said, I had a good time watching this movie. But I think the plot is more incidental detail than it is part of the ideological vision of this film. America, how we want to stand this front while violence got to be played. It's a war we're fighting across our land. It's here right now, so let's take a stand. With the L.A. Lakers, if we're here to say that the drugs are killing every day. Okay, the crime is all got to go. We got to learn to just say no. I'm Kareem, the captain of the team. I don't need drugs, I got a higher thing. My sky hook makes the team look good, but there's a hook we gotta shave from the neighborhood. My name is West, and on the court I'm rough. Out here on the street, we all gotta get tough. Save no to drugs, call the drug man's blood. Call me Sprint, give my team my best. When you really care, you can do no less. But the game of life is more serious. The drugs make losers of all of us. My name is Mike, but they call me Cool. My main hangout is up around the hood. We play hard, but we still play smart. We never let drugs tear us apart. 